I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 as we continue our series on the parables. Last Sunday, we introduced this series by looking at the parable of the sower and the soils, which is a parable about parables. But in this parable, uh, the Lord teaches us something related and yet goes even deeper. Luke chapter 16 Uh, Verses 19 through 31. This is God's word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may understand what you would teach us this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have you ever heard a really good ghost story? Like a really good one. Not the cheesy ones. The one that just leaves you thinking and ruminating over. I mean, there are all kinds of ghost stories. In my home state of South Carolina, we've got the gray man. There was a, an old truss bridge between my hometown and, and the state capitol. And there was a story that, you know, on a certain dark and rainy night, you might find a little girl wanting a ride home there on that bridge. I never saw her. Her name was Mary. Their name is always Mary, apparently. And if you would take her home, she would find peace. All kinds of wonderful ghost stories. But what makes one good? When you're sitting at summer camp around the campfire and you're telling the story, what makes it good? I think it's 
that a really good ghost story, it, it turns the tables on you. It's no longer just a story about people out there and ghosts in these faraway places. You're sitting there with your flashlights around the campfire. It puts you in the middle of the story because the man with the hook is right here. You know, like, it's, it's right, you're there. The call is coming from the basement. It's that sort of thing. A good ghost story puts you in the middle of it. Jesus tells us a ghost story of a sort that does exactly that. It might seem to be about the rich man and Lazarus, but as we dig deeper, we're going to find that he turns the tables on us and he puts us right in the middle of it. So let's examine the story and see how he does it. We're going to look at the setup. We're going to look at how the story ends, and we're going to see the point of it all and what that has to do with us. So the first thing I want us to do is look at the setup of the story, because in it we see two men with very different but parallel lives. You see this rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen which is in itself a statement of his wealth. You could just say there was a man clothed in purple and fine linen, and you would know that in this day and age, he was wealthy beyond belief because the dyes to make cloth purple did not come cheaply. And to to have linen, not just something woven together, but something fine and light and breathable, only the rich, only the powerful could afford such luxury. But then we're introduced to a man named Lazarus who was clothed not in purple linen, not in anything so fine, but was clothed in sores. Sores that the dogs themselves would lick. They both have clothes of a sort, but they could not be more different. This rich man has daily feasts. We read that he feasted sumptuously every day. I mean, feasts are wonderful and fun. My favorite holiday is Thanksgiving because the whole thing is, let's have a feast. But to feast every day, all of this rich food and wine would not go well for my annual physical and cholesterol tests for sure. But this rich man, he's not worried about that. He's not worried about what it'll do to his financial status. He has got all the resources and all the ability to cart out the finest wines and the finest foods, the the richest meats daily. I mean, this is the day and age when to have meat was a luxury. But this kind of feast... It, it, it centered around some roast, some cut of meat that the average person in this day and age could only dream about having on occasion. And here he is every day, filling his belly with whatever he desired. And Lazarus, this poor man, longed only to be fed with what fell from that rich man's table. But here he was at the gate. Like, how is it that whatever scraps fell from the rich man's table would even get to Lazarus at all? 
some historical research has turned up that it wasn't uncommon in this day and age for the rich and the famous to use old bread that wasn't good for much of anything as napkins. Right? I mean, we were, you know, we use cloth napkins or paper napkins. They didn't have anything so wondrous. And we're taught to, you know, put that napkin in your lap to catch stuff so the scraps don't get to the floor, then don't get to the dogs. But now here, they just needed something to, you know, wipe that little bit of mustard off their face or whatever. And so they would use old bread, old bread that wasn't good for anything else but to be a napkin. Right? This wasn't bread that was just a little stale that you could chop it up and turn it and season it and turn it into croutons. This wasn't bread that just needed the edges taken off and, and it was fine and you could just make This was bread that was good for nothing else than to wipe the, the, the wasted food off of your face. And they would take these old scraps of bread and they would just toss them in the street for the poor. And so here is Lazarus longing for, for, for just anything, this almost inedible bread, bread that the dogs aren't even interested in. They would rather lick Lazarus's sores than gobble up this bread. Here is Lazarus left with nothing but the utter cast-offs from this rich man's table. This rich man lived in a gated house. This this was not normal in this day and age. People lived in the walls. They they threw up houses. They were all together in this city. They're just they're put together to to have a a, a gated home that sort of set the boundaries so you didn't have to hear your neighbors on either side and didn't have to worry about being intruded upon was a luxury. It implies that he had many rooms, a home that was ostentatious and extravagant, and that he could shut everyone he didn't want in there out. Lazarus, this poor man, was laid at that gate, exposed to the elements with no shelter for his head. And even in their deaths, this, this gap between them is, is just so evident because the rich man was buried in a tomb. Even our Lord Jesus was given a tomb by a wealthy person. It was not common for people, definitely not for the poor, to have the luxury of a tomb to be laid in, to be memorialized in their death. And nothing's even mentioned of the arrangements that Lazarus' earthly body enjoyed. Most likely, he was sent to the potter's field if and when it was discovered that he had died and buried in the place of the poor with little more than the memory that he once was there at the gate. Two men with such different yet parallel lives. What are we to make of that? Growing up, I used to read the Encyclopedia Brown mysteries. If you haven't heard them, there are these little short stories where a mystery is set up and, and then you have a chance to solve it. And if you, you give up, you can turn to the end and find out what really happened. Well, when our 
kids were growing up, we found audiobook versions of these and we would listen to them on family trips. And there was a moment when our kids were amazed that Tracy and I were so able to solve all of these mysteries. And whether or not it's because we've read all the books is irrelevant. If you've, if you've st- and I hate to take the shine off, off of Encyclopedia Brown because he's amazing, but if you've read enough of them and listened to enough of them, you start to learn that there's a, a, a trick to solving it. There is always something that's just mentioned in multiple indirect and direct ways that just seems, why would you include that detail? That doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything. Why is it important that this person was filing their nails after a shower? It, it doesn't even seem to be worth mentioning that they would be filing their nails. And yet here we are. Maybe that is important. And you can start to learn the trick to figure out how Encyclopedia Brown knows what the mystery is is there's this one clue that reveals the truth. In a similar way, there is a clue in this parable that foreshadows that as different as these men are, those differences continue in very stark and unnerving ways. And it's this. We meet this rich man. And we learn all about his clothing and his food and his shelter and his habits and just the extravagance of his being. But we learn Lazarus' name. In fact, he's the only person Jesus names in a parable. This poor man that no one has any care for or any interest in, even the rich man, we find, knows his name. Abraham knows his name. He is known in a deep and significant way. And it's this clue that foreshadows for us a very unnerving end for these two men. Because what we find in the ending is that in death, Their situations are dramatically reversed. Years ago, I read a news article about a retired teacher who passed away. And she passed away with meager resources. She lived in a very poor area of town, had no reputation in the community for extravagance, was very frugal, and had was known for just scraping by. But as the executor went through her affairs, they discovered that this poor retired teacher was a millionaire. She had saved up all of this money and invested all of this stuff over time and gave it to her descendants as her gift to them. And no one, not even those closest to her, had any idea at all. But there's something about death. When somebody's going through all of your effects, all of the letters, all of the things you collected, there's something about death that reveals truth about who you really are. And in death, the truth about who these men were was revealed. And we see it in the reversal of their circumstances. Just... Consider how the angels 
carry Lazarus to Abraham's side. Now, the the angels in the scripture are the, the heavenly armies of God. They are sent to declare his word, to give announcement of what God intends to do. They are sent out to fight the forces of evil and to stand firm against those who would destroy God's people. They are full of light and power, and they cause men, when they see these angelic beings, to fall on their faces, though dead, thinking that they have beheld a god. They are not sent on meaningless, menial tasks. And God sends them, these angelic warriors, to carry Lazarus to the side of Abraham. Whereas the rich man, he's died and buried, and he just wakes up in Hades, the place of the dead, in torment and anguish, not certain how he got there or why. At, Lazar- at Abraham's side, Lazarus is comforted. He is He is satisfied. He is at ease. Whatever torment he endured at the, at the, the dogs, from the sores, from his lack, whatever derision he received from the mouths or hands of men, he now finds nothing but peace and comfort at Abraham's side. And, it, and he doesn't leave because it is a place Not like the gate, a place that is wondrous, healing, and whole. But the rich man, by his own testimony, we find that as the dogs licked the sores of Abraham, the flames of fire are licking his flesh and bringing him torment and distress and anguish. Lazarus has found his desires satisfied. He wants for nothing. We hear nothing more from him. He is content and at peace there at Abraham's side. But the rich man has this insatiable thirst. That, that just, a drop of, just a drop of water would bring me some relief. I don't even need a whole glass. I can't make it through Sunday school in a sermon without a few sips of water. This rich man is in such torment that the idea of a drop of water on the back of his tongue brings him some relief. But we know that that drop won't bring him full relief. His thirst will be insatiable. And where Lazarus had to be laid at a gate, separated from a man who had all the resources to provide for Lazarus and not even think twice about it, where Lazarus was once separated from earthly satisfaction by a gate, now a great chasm separates the rich man from eternal bliss. And none can cross it. Not Abraham, 
not Lazarus, not the rich man, not even the angels will dare to cross this chasm that is fixed and eternal, separating this place of torment from this place of comfort. So what are we to make of this? What does it mean that these two men, so different yet parallel, find in death their their situations completely reversed? What is this parable about? What do we learn in the end? Is it about money? Is it about wealth and what we ought to do with it or its dangers or how we ought to care for the poor? Is it about social justice? Is it about doing what is right by those who have less? Is it about eternity? Heaven and hell? Paradise and torment. What is this parable about? There was a study, I think from Harvard, you can fact check me another time, where they had people watch this video and they had to count the number of times these, this group of people passed balls between them, one another. And at the end, they had to give a report on the final count. Only 50% of the people in that study noticed that a man in a gorilla suit walked through, spent nine seconds in the video, jumping up and down and, and causing all kinds of ruckus before walking off. Half of them didn't even realize that even happened. So absorbed were they in counting the times the ball was passed back and forth. They completely and utterly missed the point. And there is a danger that we also will miss the point. Why Jesus is telling this parable. What is it he wants us to know? See, there's a second clue about what he is getting at here. It's not just that the rich man is nameless, that Lazarus is known. It's that even in death, these two men are unchanged in their being, in their heart. Notice how Lazarus He never says a thing. This rich man, in torment, in hell, looks up at Abraham and still embodies this wealthy, elitist sense of grandiosity such that he thinks he can boss Lazarus around. Send Lazarus down here to to relieve me. Send Lazarus to go warn my brothers. Father Abraham, he's bossing Father Abraham around. Now, please, you know, do this. You know, I know we're equals, but send Lazarus, this lesser person. This, this man in torment, in hell, never pauses for just one second to wonder, how is it that I am here and he is there? He's not changed. He's still all about himself and meeting his own needs and satisfying his own desires. And this parable is hinting, is pointing us to the thing that really matters, the point of what Jesus is getting at here. And the point is this. 
The real difference in the men was in their heart. And this is why Jesus tells the parable. But there's a part we didn't read. If you turn back to verse 14, this is how the whole situation is set up. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And then he launches into this parable. What is going on? He's just told a parable, we'll look at it later in the summer, about the dishonest manager, about how you cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees mock him, they laugh at him. Jesus says, you have all the appearance of righteousness. You have all of these rules, all of this knowledge about God and about the scriptures. And you follow it after a certain fashion, but even in your following it, You disregard the heart of it because you don't love God. The scriptures say, if you're going to divorce for these egregious reasons, here's how you should do it so as to protect all parties. But you've turned that into, which is whatever reason you want. And you just hand your wives a certificate of divorce for no reason at all because you are displeased with their cooking or they haven't smiled at you enough lately or you just are just tired of dealing with them altogether. And you have cast all of that aside and have gone your own way and have rejected the Lord God. You don't want to be with him. You don't want to live with him forever in glory. You want what you want. And you have turned even God's word to your, serve your own ends. But God sees your heart. And he knows. He knows who you really are and what you have really done. And he knows, though, he knows those who end their hearts long for the restoration of all things. For God to set things right. For them to dwell with him forever, to know the peace and security of his presence. God knows those who would even take heaven by force because it's so precious to them. But you, you are hypocrites, who have the the form of religiosity, but you are rotten in your heart. This is why he has this whole segment at the end where the rich man's like, send Lazarus to tell them about this place of torment. We didn't know. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have everything they need to know. God has revealed everything that we need to know about him, about what life is about, about what eternity involves. Let them listen. But no, they won't listen to Moses and the prophets. Because they, like the rich man, have no love for anyone but themselves. 
And what we find in all of this is that this, this rich man and his brothers, the Pharisees after them, they are rich in wealth and in reputation and in knowledge and in resources and in power. But they are spiritually destitute. They are whitewashed tombs. They are the walking dead. But Lazarus, this poor man who has nothing to his name, who endured a lifetime of suffering and alienation, who looked the only place he could look for comfort to the God of heaven and earth. He was spiritually rich. And at the end of the ages, the longings of his heart were satisfied because he longed for nothing more than to be in the presence of God. He is one that Jesus describes as who heard the good news of the kingdom of God when it was preached and takes hold of it. And he held on to that hope through the most arduous of circumstances. And that hope was vindicated when he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This poor man was spiritually rich, while the rich man was spiritually poor. So where do we come in? How is it that Jesus puts us in the middle of all of this? He alludes here at the end. They do not hear Moses and the prophets. Neither will they be be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This allusion to the Lord's resurrection, it puts us in the story. Because we have heard that news. Not just the good news of the kingdom that is to come, but the good news of the kingdom that has been won by our king who died the death that we deserved, that we might live for him, in him, that we might know everlasting life because he has risen from the grave and conquered death. And we are put in a place upon hearing that good news of the resurrection and eternal life What will the response of our hearts be to Jesus? Will we continue as the Pharisees did, knowing all about the truths of Scripture, knowing all about the things that God has called us to know and to do and to be, but never knowing in our hearts what it means to submit ourselves in love and in faith to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to seek his will and not our own, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We can tell ourselves all sorts of things about what we believe and what our lives are about and how important we think we are or aren't, but God sees past even the lies that we tell ourselves right to the heart. 
And here in the parable that we looked at last week, the parable that we're looking at this week, and so many of the parables that Christ tells, they get to this point. Certainly, it has implications for how we use our money. It has implications for how we care for the poor. It has absolute implications for eternity and heaven and hell. But at the core, the, this parable and so many others confront us with Jesus and ask the question, who is he to you, really? God sees your heart, and he knows. Maybe, as you examine your own heart, you don't know, and you find yourself in a place wondering, is my response to Jesus right? Have I been so shaped and changed by my encounter with the Lord that it does, in fact, turn on its head the way I approach all of life? From how I think about eternity and heaven and hell to how I think about those around me and the needs that they have to how I think about how I handle my wealth and resources. Do I know what the response of my heart is to Jesus? In the ages past, before computers took over everything and ChatGPT told us what was true, that was sarcasm. Only the most skilled artists could cut a rough diamond into something beautiful. Right? Like no, nobody pulls a, a rough diamond out of the ground and thinks to themselves, let's put this in a ring. That'll look great. It doesn't look, it's full of impurities. It doesn't reflect the light. Well, like you can see there's something going on there, but it's, it's not great. You know, men... Don't get an uncut diamond if you're looking to get engaged to somebody. It just communicates all the wrong things. But if you were a skilled craftsman, you would have learned and developed the ability to to cut in just the right places to take this rough thing full of impurities, full of dirt, full of holes even, to cut that thing and, and, and fracture it. And break it until it was something glorious and gorgeous and wondrous that captivated the attention of all who saw it. And if we learn anything from Jesus, he doesn't just want us to stand confused. He wants us to draw near to him. He is the key to understanding the parables, and he is the master who has the ability to turn our hearts from things full of impurities and wickedness and selfishness and idolatry and make them into something glorious, something that, that bears witness that only God himself can do this. He who has risen from the dead He knows how to give you a new heart that hears and believes and lives out his word. Will you draw near to him from your heart and know him? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pray with me. Heavenly Father.
Teach us what it means to be like you, not in word only, but from our hearts, that all of our life might reflect your glory in how we handle our money and how we treat the poor and the downtrodden among us and how we live not for earthly gain, but for your glory. Teach us these things, Lord. Shape our hearts that this might be true of us, that we might not miss the point, that might see the one who is indeed risen from the dead and draw near to him in love. Make this so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.